Texas Jack, The White King of the Pawnees by Ned Buntline, author of Buffalo Bill, etc. Chapter 4, Texas Jack Finds Friends The Indians, yet beyond rifle range, yelled wildly when they saw the horse of the brave scout fall, for now they felt sure of a victim. He was too far from cover to hope to reach it on foot before they could surround him, or, charging down, overwhelm him with numbers. But cunningly they halted to breathe and rest their horses, so that they could charge at full speed when ready, and thus distract an aim which they were aware would be deadly, for they knew well whom they were following, the great whirling rope of the prairie as they called him, from his known expertness at throwing the lasso over man or beast. And they knew that with rifle or revolver he had no match, not even in his great friend and mate Buffalo Bill. To wipe him out would be to relieve themselves of their most dreaded enemy and to take from their ancient foes, the Red Pawnees, a chief and leader whom the latter almost idolized. The halt gave Texas Jack time to dig a shallow pit with his broad-bladed hunting knife in the sand behind his fallen steed so that he could cover all but his head and shoulders from their balls and arrows when they would swoop down upon him and also have a better chance for defense in what must come, the hand-to-hand conflict, for he knew their numbers as well as their hate would bring them to that. Cooley laying his two revolvers and a handful of extra rifle cartridges on the side of his dead horse so as to have them in reach, the hero scout cocked his Spencer rifle, took a draft of cold water from his canteen, and waited. I'd like to have Bill Cody see this bit of a fight, muttered Texas Jack. He and I have been in some tough places and got out, but this looks squally. I think I could lay out about two dozen of the Red Devils before they get too heavy, for they'll come all in a heap, I reckon, so I'll not waste a shot. I'd give all my winter chances for just ten of my Pawnee, but they're not here, so there's no use in wishing. It's a fight and nothing else for me. Well, please heaven, I'm used to it. I learned the trade young, and hello, the friends are mounting. The Indians, who had been holding a consultation while they rested their animals, were now uh, seen by Texas Jack to mount and extend their line. They'll not come in a lump, he muttered in a tone of disappointment. So much the worse for me. I'll have to make slow shooting to be sure. Extending their line and throwing the wings forward till it assumed a crescent shape, the mounted red men drove forward slowly, as if to save their horses for a rush the moment they were within range. Thirty-three. There's luck in odd numbers, and the luck is with them, muttered Jack, easily counting them in line. How coolly they take it. They think they've got a dead sure thing on me. Maybe they have, but some way I don't believe it. I don't feel the chill on me half as bad as I have when in other tight places. The Indians, with their ponies at a walk, were now so near that those on the wings were in range, and as quietly as if picking out one elk from a herd for his supper, Texas Jack took side over his rifle for the nearest. Scarcely had he raised the barrel, ere he pressed the trigger, and a second later the Indian warrior went toppling from his horse with the death yell on his lips. Another fatal shot, and then the Indians, knowing that speed only could help them disarrange his fatal aim, gave the charging shout, and closing up came at a wild gallop down about the heroic scout. Shot after shot, so fast his rifle streamed fire, told how well he knew his work, and at every shot a warrior went reeling from his horse. Still on they came, a yelling pack of fiends, firing as they came, but with such poor aim that when the hero dropped his rifle, snatching a revolver with either hand, he was yet unharmed, though full twenty of them were now close upon him. With a yell as loud and wild as their fiercest cry, the brave men rose fairly from the pit where he had sheltered himself, and standing on the body of his dead horse, poured out a deadly fire from both revolvers. 
But even this did not check their terrible onslaught of the Sioux, who seemed intent on taking his life if but one remained to do it. On they came, some falling, but others springing to the front, and now the hero felt the burning pain of wounds. At the same instant he heard wild yells close in his rear, he felt that his time was come, but a cry in the Pawnee tongue nerved his heart once more, for he knew that friends, not foes, were close behind. Obedient to a warning shout, he fell prone in the pit behind his horse, while a second later a shower of rifle balls whistled close above his head, sweeping down the Sioux to a man, and they halted, panic-stricken, before foes which seemed to have come like clouds before a gale to the rescue of the doomed paleface. Texas Jack saw a score of red forms leaping past and over him. He heard a few scattering shots and crunching blows, and then the terrible scalp cries of the Red Pawnees told him that the Sioux, even in the moment of anticipated victory over him, had met defeat and death. He staggered to his feet, bleeding from two keen flesh wounds, to see Big Elk, the Pawnee chief, standing by his side while his warriors were tearing the scalps from their fallen enemies. So, my brother was in a hot place. The Pawnees heard his rifle speak and came to help him when he needed them. Big Elk and his braves did come at the right time, said Texas Jack. The Great Spirit sent them, for it is not written that the Sioux shall take my scalp. Alone I defied them. Many of them went down before my rifle, but they were hungry for my life, and I was looking in the clouds when I heard the war cry of the Pawnee brave. I owe Big Elk a life. Someday I may pay the debt. My brother owes the Pawnees nothing. He is their friend and brother. He has led them in their great hunts. He has fought for them in their wars. They will fight for him while grass grows or water runs. My brother's horse is dead. He shall have the best that Big Elk owns. The Pawnees will lift the scalps of many Sioux today, and it is the whirling rope who gave them to us. The chief now called in his warriors, and their horses were brought up from the rear, where they had been left when the Pawnee band crept over a ridge to see who was battling in their front. The wounds of Texas Jack were quickly dressed, and then, mounting with the others, he rode toward their hunting camp not far away. The Sioux, who were scattered far back on the trail, were too much disheartened when they reached the battleground to follow up the victorious Pawnees, and Texas Jack found rest with old and tried friends, the only Indians in that section who are not treacherous and hostile, even under the peace flag if opportunity offers. Chapter 5. The Plan of Action You heard what she said. Jacques LaSalle thus addressed Basil Lamour. Aye, every word. And through a narrow opening in the door as it stood ajar, I watched your face when she told you that you yet loved the false Lucille. She lied. I do not love her. Women are keen observers in matters of the heart. She studied you closely, hoping to use you for her own purposes. She mistook your eager look when you asked if Lucille would come for your answer, for a wish that she would come. Maybe she was right. I would like to see the girl, woman, I mean, just to look at her, and then to curse her. You would not do it. You would soften if she came, unless the man she has chosen instead of you stood by her side. Never. I'll tell you that I am adamant. I came back from a rough, hard life to be a man. I heard of her treachery, and I turned devil. Your acts may prove it to me. Words will not. But we will speak of her hereafter. When I said that I would help you to revenge, you said you would aid me in my plans. I did, and will not back out from my bargain. Well, hear my story. I am as nobly born as was my cousin who lies dead in the castle, or she who was here but now. Educated to suit my birth, with a small patrimony of my own, I went out into the world. I lived fast, but as a gentleman, and my means went fast also. 
accepting an invitation to visit the old Marquis, I soon became a great favorite with him, and I threw the fair Adeline purposefully in my way that we might love and wed. Her beauty pleased me, but her prospect as an heiress pleased me even better yet. But soon I learned that she did not like me, for the life I had led, and yet lead, so far as I could in a region where pretty girls are plenty, and wine and cards also. Also that she liked a young protege of the Marquis best of all, that painter who came here to be with her. Though I loved her as well as I could love, none of my feeling, call it love or passion, seemed to be reflected in her. To me she was a cloud, an iceberg. Then I began to hate her, and this feeling she soon returned. She set the old man against me, exposed my faults, and the consequences that he disinherited me. But I hold that the title and entailed estates are rightly mine, as nearest of kindred in the male line, and I have enough of gold amassed to keep up my points. If there is such a man living in America as his brother's son, that man is of a nearer kindred, and he must die. Yes, a title and vast estates are worth running a risk for, but America is a rather large tract of land to look for one man in. If she should not find him, what need for you to hunt him out? He will not be in your way. But she will. A woman is more persevering than a man. Her hate and her love last longer than his. She will seek, and she will find him. Then all you have to do is to track her. Exactly, and that is what I wish to do. And to make our plans jibe or work, I think you had best accede to the wishes of the high-born lady. Go with her to America. I, too, disguised, will sail in the same ship. To secure your revenge, make it a condition that Lucille and her husband go as her attendants, as well as the painter, Edouard de Carl. Before the voyage is over, Lucille may be a widow, and then she will be no more to me than now. I never take up with second-hand property, said LaSalle scornfully, but I will hearken to your advice. It suits me to go back to America. I loved France in my boyhood, but that love is dead. Then adieu for this night. I have plans to form and work to do. We understand each other, fall in with her plans, and I will make mine an accord. Chapter 6. Raid on a Train Hello, Bill. How have things gone with you since I've been out? This was the salute of Texas Jack on his return from his scout to the Big Hills, meaning Buffalo Bill, near his lovely little home at Fort McPherson. Quiet, Jack, quiet. A half dozen hunts, but nothing more than game in the way. You look pale. Have you been sick? No, but I lost a little bud the other day. Had to burst with a gang of cowardly Sioux. I'd have gone under if Big Elk the Pawnee hadn't happened to be that way just in time. You're always in luck, Jack. I haven't had a chance to draw a bead on a red in three months. How many did you lay out? I don't know. Big Elk and his gang got about 30 scalps, I believe. What's the news? Any scouts projected? Well, I don't know that. I've been sent in from headquarters, and I should go out in a few minutes. Good. I'll come along, for I have a report to make. Hey, there comes a Pawnee, writing as if old Nick had kicked him. A second later, the Indian spoken of reined in his painting horse at a signal from Texas Jack, who asked what hurried him so. Me got report for Big Father at Fort, said the Pawnee. Train on railroad been stopped below, wires cut from poles by bad white men dressed as same Pawnee. Lots of money, some white squaws carried off. Must go quick, so soldiers can chase. The Indian said no more, but spurred his horse into a gallop and went on. Well, we'd better mount up and hurry out, said Buffalo Bill. If that Pawnee doesn't lie, there's work for us and for the cavalry. The Pawnees may lie among themselves, but they know better than to tell me a crooked story, said Texas Jack as he sprang for his horse. 
Buffalo Bill took an instant only to say a word to his dear ones in the house, while one of his men saddled Powderface. Then, snatching his arms, he sprang into the saddle and, side by side with Texas Jack, galloped to the fort. The bugles were calling boots and saddles when the two scouts rode down the street in front of the headquarters. The general was out himself, giving verbal orders to several of his officers. You're just both in time, he said as the scouts dashed up. While the troops form, this Pawnee will tell you where the trail can be taken of a body of men who have committed one of the most daring outrages on record. They must be followed, their captives rescued, and the thieves themselves be exterminated. This slow course of civil law will never be justice in a case like theirs, and the officer who leads the expedition will not be troubled with orders to encumber himself with prisoners. Talk with the Pawnee and get ready to guide the troops. They will carry no forage and only scant rations, for they must go light to ensure speed. The scouts merely bowed their heads to signify that the orders were understood, and then rode up to where the Pawnee was putting his saddle and bridle on a fresh horse, a far better one than the one he came in on. We are to go with you to guide the troops. Where are the cars stopped? asked Texas Jack, talking to the Pawnee in his own tongue. Down the big river, a half-sun swift ride, this side of Lone Tree Island. How many men did it? Me not know, a big heap, so railroad men say. Did they kill anyone? Yes, a few men that showed fight. They carry away about so many handsome white squaws and heaps of money. The Pawnee held up all of his fingers to show how many white women had been made captive. It isn't anything more than I've expected ever since the road opened, said Bill. As civilization advances, gambling and thieving in the border towns become played out, and the rascals that used to live that way have to scratch hard to keep from starvation. They've got linked in a gang, got some smart leader, and now they'll play Indian with more than Indian ugliness, while they know better than to throw off trains and the Reds do. This will not be the last work of this kind. It will be of this gang if we only overhaul them, said Texas Jack. You heard the general. They're to be wiped out. Yes, but we must catch them before we wipe out. When was this work done? The question was asked of the Pawnee. Last night, when the moon was going down. Then they've got a big start. If they know what they're about, they'll keep us days off the trail and throw us off it all together. I'd like to see them that can do that, said Buffalo Bill. It isn't in my line to lose a trail after I take it. Nor in mine either, said Texas Jack, but we both had trails washed out by a prairie storm, and if one isn't brewing now, I'm no judge of signs. It may be forty hours off yet, said Buffalo Bill quietly. Do you see what they're doing on the parade? Yep, forming company lines, a full battalion going out. More than that. Don't you see the extra horses coming in from the corral? This is going to be a fast work and no stopping, a change of horse for every man. That's sensible, and I'll have a couple of my best extra ponies for you and me, said Buffalo Bill. A moment later, he gave the order to one of his hunters, who rode up to know whether Buffalo Bill was going away or not. Only about a half hour had passed since the Pawnee messenger had brought the news, when the full cavalry battalion, headed by the two guides and the Pawnee, passed out of the gates at a gallop heading away from the scene of outrage to take the trail of the robbers and the murderers. It was quick work, but the army on the frontier is used to rapid movements and sudden calls. Chapter 7 Look, mademoiselle, he stands in the door. We don't like to look back, but there are times when we must, and it were better in life, as in fiction, if we did do so once in a while, instead of only looking ahead. Instead of sending Lucille, Adeline Churchill herself called to get an answer of Jacques LaSalle. She came alone, or at least entered the cabaret alone, leaving her attendant in the carriage at the door. I have come, Monsieur, alone, to hear your answer of my proposition. 
I have, as I told you before, a relative somewhere in the western wilds of America, one of the ancient name of Omahundro, who I have never seen. How then will you know him, mademoiselle? I have a picture of his father, and one supposed to be like him. In the last, he is clad in a hunter's dress, like that which you wear. I have known many hunters, but none of that name. No matter. I feel that with your aid, who knows the country so well, we can find him. Perhaps. Well, mademoiselle, I will go. Oh, thank you, Monsieur LaSalle. Thank you. Not too fast, mademoiselle. You may not thank me when you hear my conditions. Oh, Monsieur, I'm ready to pay any price. Mademoiselle, you must understand me. Money's no object to me. I have enough of it. But I have a whim in my head. I know that Lucille is lost to me. Yet I want to see her. To see her often. To know from my own eyes that she lives and is contented with her lot. She must go with me. Ah, oh, Monsieur, you forget. She has a husband and a child, a sweet cherub of a babe. I do not forget, Mademoiselle. I wish that I could. I have named the only condition. I will not stir one step to aid you unless Lucille, her husband, and her child are in the party. Ah, all three? You are a strange man. You love her yet, and would yet be a willing witness that she is happy with another? Mademoiselle, I am a strange man, not given to much talk, but I mean all that I say. If you wish to go on my conditions, I'm ready. The next steamer for America sails in a week. Monsieur LaSalle, I do not know that I can persuade them to go, but I will try. You have the power to command them, mademoiselle. The husband of Lucille is your steward now. You are well posted, monsieur. Who should be better, mademoiselle? He holds the treasure that I have believed to be mine for years. It is likely that I should be interested in him. Your eyes flash. You hate that man. You would do him violence, perhaps kill him when in a strange land. No, mademoiselle, I would not kill him. We cannot hate the dead. I want him to live. I will be the last to shorten his life. If you promise that, I will try to arrange that they go as my special attendants. It is well, mademoiselle. If you try, you will succeed. I will get ready. You need not tell them that I am to go in the ship. She has not seen me since I came back, though I have seen her. You can speak of me only as an American hunter. I will accede to that wish gladly. He might be jealous and she might be made unhappy. What a pity that would be. A false woman should only know happiness. Monsieur, you are very bitter. Oh no, mademoiselle. Only philosophical. That's better, if philosophy succeeds in making us contend with what is. But again, monsieur, I will say adieu and go to hasten my preparations for the voyage. Please accept this roll of notes. There are 500 francs for your own needs. Mademoiselle, I have 50,000 francs on my person now, all my own. I have told you money is no object to me. I go on this expedition to oblige you and to please myself. Keep your money, or spend it on Lucille and, and on anyone you please. Adieu till we meet on the packet. The hunter turned and left the room through the door, while the lady, painted his abrupt refusal to receive aid, descended to her carriage. Her maid looked pale and terrified when she saw her mistress enter. What's the matter, Suzanne? You look as if you'd seen a ghost. I've seen worse, mademoiselle. Your cousin, Basil Lamour, is in the cabaret. He looked in the carriage just now when he passed, and such a look he gave me. My blood has run cold ever since. Do not fear, Suzanne. He dare not harm any one of us. He is mad with disappointment. He would like to be master at the castle, but he cannot be. A master will come by and by but it will not be he. 
I'm so glad to hear that, mademoiselle, for we are all afraid of him. The servants are, I mean. I think it would as quickly kill one of us as he would shoot a hare. Look, mademoiselle, he stands in the door. Adeline did look, and she bade her coachman drive on, for his face seemed so full of hate that even she, brave and powerful in her wealth, shuddered as she turned from his menacing look. Chapter 8 My Child is Gone Four days out from Havre, and the swift, strong steamship had made almost half her distance across the rough Atlantic. A quartering wind blew fresh, and canvas helped the steam with almost equal power. But the captain of the steamer watched the western horizon, into which the sun was sinking, anxiously on that fourth night from port. For it went down in a cloud of inky blackness, while the breeze which had filled the sails so gallantly died away, leaving the ship to roll gunwales under in the heavy sea. His face, rather than his words, told officers and men what he looked for, and orders were little needed to secure the ship, to tauten the stays and braces, see to the boat lashings, and clear up the decks. Long before the light of another day broke, the ship tumbled and pitched on the fearful sea, while spar after spar was lowered away to lighten her aloft, and every precaution taken to make her easy in the gale. When day broke, all hands were on deck, even the passengers aft, for the scene was so terrible that they could not hide away from it. The steamer, unable to stand the fearful roll of the sea and keep her course, was brought round head to, and even then, with a full head of steam on, in the face of wind and waves, she could barely hold a steerage way. There were not many cabin passengers, for it was the season of storms, but in the steerage there were a great many, and these were kept below. It is a fearful sight. Will not the ship go down? asked Adeline Shershiel, as she turned her eyes on the young artist who stood nearer. The ship is strong, the crew faithful, and the captain knows his duty well, was his response. We are in the hands of a merciful providence. Sweet mistress, the spray is drenching you from head to foot, said Lucille, who stood close by, half supported by the strong arm of her manly-looking husband. It drenches you and your babe as well, Lucille. I can endure it, said Adeline with a sweet smile. Then she glanced towards a man who stood some yards away, with a great sea-cloak around him, and with a slouched hat drawn over his eyes. This man, Jacques Lassalle, had taken passage in the steerage. He told her it was because he did not wish to be thrown into too close contact with Lucille. But now he stood glowering there, looking at her, her husband and child, as if he were himself a demon in the storm, glorifying in that which frightened them. And while Adeline looked at him, another man, so bearded that only dark, fierce eyes could be seen above his Roman nose, approached LaSalle and spoke. The two bent their heads together and seemed to talk earnestly, and then looked at the group of which Adeline formed the center, and the high-born girl felt an intuitive fear, as if some dark evil were being plotted against her peace and safety. Who is that talking with the hunter? she asked of Edouard de Carle in a low tone, audible only to his ear. I do not know. He is with him often, and when they are together both seem to watch us as if we are the subject of conversations. Do not appear to notice them, while really I will watch their every look and motion. I do not trust the hunter so fully as you do. I must trust him, Edward, or I will never find my cousin. I showed him the picture and he recognized the original. He says he can find him within ten days after we land. We will see, said the artist with a sigh. The more I watch him in his motions, the less do I believe in his pretended friendship. But dear girl, you had better go to the cabin. This cold spray is dangerous to your health. I could not leave the deck, Edward. It is terrible here, but it would be more terrible to imagine the dangers and not to face them. Oh, look, look, the seas seem to rise higher and higher all the time. Should one break upon the ship, we would be overwhelmed. 
that will not be. The brave steamer meets and rises over them as they come. If her machinery stands, she will ride through it safely. We are in mid-ocean now, and safe from the dangers of rock-bound shores. Ah, hold fast all, hold fast all, shouted the captain, and from his station on the quarter-deck. The words thundered through his trumpet with startling emphasis. And even as he spoke, a monster sea came rolling down upon them like a huge watery mountain, and toppling far above the steamer's bow, it broke down in a terrible deluge, sweeping the steamer from stem to stern. At the first cry of the captain, Edouard de Carl grasped Adeline around her waist with his left arm, while with his right arm he caught a strong rope, which was fast to the mizzenmast, and wound it around them both. Thus, when the sea fairly deluged them, taking them off their feet, they were yet held to the mast, while fearful shrieks and wild shouts told what peril all were in. A second more, and the ship rose from the weight of water, just as a woman shrieked out, My child! My child is gone! It was Lucille's shriek that pierced every ear, and every eye was fixed in horror as she pointed to her babe in its white garments far out on the receding wave. My child! Will no one save my child? she screamed again. Yes, yes, shouted a stern voice, and Jacques saw himself, dashing aside hat and cloak, rushed to the stern of the steamer and sprang into the sea. Fool! Let the brat go! shouted another voice, and a man strove in vain to reach and restrain him before he leaped. Adeline, as well as Edouard, recognized that man. It was Basil L'Amour.